So this story I'm about to tell you, you're going to take it tongue-in-cheek, okay? Tongue-in-cheek. And so young boy is brought before the judge, and it's a custody case, you know, mom and dad. And the judge finally just says, son, would you like to spend, would you like to have your mother take custody? Uh, thank you, Vyther, very much. Would you like to have your mother take custody of you? And he looks up, and he, he kind of says, well, my mother beats me. Um, well, how, how about your father? I mean, sh how about, would you like to then go with your father? And he confesses, well, my father beats me. And the judge says, who would be able to take you? And he says, can the Orlando Magic take me? And the judge looks at him and says, why would you want that? He says, because they don't beat anybody. Yeah. Now, I'm going to confess, I grew up as a runner. My dad was a track coach and a cross-country coach at Brandywine High School. And so at two years of age, no, I'm just kidding. But seriously, about nine years of age, he got me running in my first race, uh, cross-country anyway. I, I had done like in elementary school. You guys ever have field day in elementary school and public schools? Element? Yeah. I mean, we have field days, and, and I tended to gravitate towards the longer distance runs. And so I, I remember my dad, and he's coaching me, especially like 11 and 12 years old. He, he was just really getting me into to racing. And he said, now, Mike, when you're running this race, it's a two-mile race. And you're going to have some of these young guys sprinting the first 100 or 200 yards. Let them go. Just let them run out of gas. But also understand that some of them, they're going to hold a lot back. And so you need to make sure you have enough energy to outkick them if they're near you. And so just be... So we're grooving to some tunes right now. And Kim, is there just a way we're... I think we're struggling with that too. Are you able to, were you able to get it working? No, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll, I'll turn a little bit more towards you when I'm talking, okay? So I can remember my dad's just cautioning me, Mike. They're going to get out there really fast or they're going to hold back and they're going to sprint at the end, but you just need to make sure you pace yourself. And so what my dad, he would actually do this because this is what he did for his high school boys and he just figured, you know, I've got to, 11, 12-year-old son, okay, and uh, so I, I ran the mile competitively, and then the two, sometimes three mile, depending on how long the cross-country course was, and so he would have me do intervals, so if I'm running a mile, he would have me do six quarter-mile intervals, and those quarter-miles had to be on pace, and, or maybe a half-mile interval, so he, he would have me stay on pace so that I just got so comfortable with that particular pace, I, I, wouldn't, I would start off a little bit faster, but I wouldn't be sprinting. And I would make sure that I had just a little bit left in the gas tank so that I had at least 100 or 200 yards kick left in me. And my dad realized that this was going to be a good strategy, and he wanted to make sure that when the finish line came, that I had enough left in my tank so that I could finish. And can I just be honest with you, is I'm now going to just take that really simple analogy and kind of use it as where we're going to start tonight. Life is like that race. Paul even talks about it being a race. And we're going to get to there in just a moment. But life is like a race, and God has called us to give ourselves to that race completely. Now, here's the challenge, and this is where the analogy breaks down. 
you do not know where the finish line is. For some people, and my heart goes out to them, their race is over quickly. And for whatever reason, God takes them home soon. And let's not just assume that we have a full 80 years plus to live here on this earth. Now, why am I going here? Because as we read this passage, Paul himself realizes that his days are short. And he has run a good race. He's paced himself. He didn't start out of the blocks really fast and then just say, you know what, I just don't have enough gas after like 300 yards, and it's a three-mile race. And I run enough, as, as a kid, I ran enough cross-country uh, uh, races, with, even with my dad, that you don't start off too fast. you got to be careful. And so many of these guys, they start off fast, and you see them walking back to the, the starting line after a couple hundred yards. They didn't pace themselves. And many Christians, they're excited they start off fast. Zeal without knowledge is not good, the Proverbs, Proverbs tells us. That we need to be careful that this is a long-distance race, and we're keeping our focus on Jesus Christ. But I also want to encourage you, look, don't leave gas in your tank at the end of the race. Don't say, hey, you know, one day I'm going to really follow after Jesus with all of my heart. As we read this, and I'm pre preparing you, as you read, we read this, Paul has left it all on the field, so to speak, all on the cross-country course, all on the, the, the track that he has run on. And he's saying, I'm done. I've run well. I'm ready to be with the Father now. And, and can I just say, it's not because he was old and he was walking around with a cane. Paul knew he was about to be killed. Think about that. If you knew that within a year, your life would be taken, how would you live that year? Let me read the passage before we go on any further. Are you there with me then? 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Paul then, the father in the faith, speaking to Timothy a son in the faith. This is his charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say with their itching ears, want to hear. Sorry, that's a strange expression, isn't it? Itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears excuse me. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. Now, I'm just going to suggest that maybe in his time of prayer, the Spirit of God has already been communicating to him. He's not saying this because he doubts God. He's just aware, okay, I've been through a lot. I mean, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It is his, it's a list of all the sufferings he's been through, but he realizes, okay, this is it. I'm ready. 
it's time for my departure. He doesn't say that out of a lack of faith. Actually, just the opposite. Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Church, if you don't get anything else, just focus in that last phrase there. To all who have longed for his appearing. I'm going to break them this two-part sermon series on this passage here in between the why and the what. The why has to do with the motivation. Why on earth, Paul, are you running this race? Why have you been willing to endure so much persecution? And then he tells uh, Timothy, hey, you know what? Endure hardship. The sermon series, as we've gone through all of 2 Timothy, is entitled Unashamed. Because Paul is aware that Timothy is wrestling with something, and if he's not careful, even Timothy, who I would suggest to you has functioned apostolically in his ministry, and, and Paul's kind of passing the baton off to him, that even Timothy is subject to that shame, subject to stepping back rather than stepping in to persecution. So I, I, I'm going to confess to you, I'm not exempt from shame, and may I also suggest to you that none of you here are exempt from that potential shame, that potential of stepping back from potential persecution rather than stepping in. And, and so we get this impression then from Paul that he's stepping in, and he's stepping in one last time. So tonight I want to talk about the motivation. Why on earth is Paul doing Why on earth has he charged Timothy to do this? Why on earth would you and I do this? And then next week, we want to talk about the what. Not just the motivation for the charge, but now what is this charge? I mean, come on. Honestly, Timothy, Paul, they're functioning apostolically. So, I mean, I, I don't function that way. I mean, I personally function as a, 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 as a, a pastor, a teacher. But for you guys, as, you, as you're sitting, and, and some of you function as deacons or deaconesses and, or some other you know, ministry, we, we, we try to avoid titles in, in, at Powerline, but the, the truth is we all have different ministries, but are you an apostle? And so it can feel a bit intimidating. I mean, how is this even relevant to me? Next week we're going to find out just how relevant it is. So tonight I want you to turn right now back to the very first verse there, and I want us to ask this question. Why is this charge so important in view of what's at stake, in view of what Paul shares now with Timothy. What is our motivation, church? And Paul tells Timothy right up front here. He says, in the presence of God and of, Jesus, and of Christ Jesus, he says, I give you this charge. It's almost as if he is saying, okay, Timothy, come on here. Come on over here. Though, of course, Timothy is not here. You understand what I'm saying. Come on over here, and I'm going to give you this charge so that God and Jesus can bear witness to this. Do you get this feeling of solemnity? Do you get this feeling of seriousness? So what Paul is about to say to Timothy, it's his last charge, last challenge that he's going to give him. Can I just say that the last challenge or charge that anyone says on their deathbed, now granted, he's not on his deathbed, but you understand, 
he realizes that he is soon going to die. Paul did not make it out of this maritime dungeon. As a matter of fact, in this dungeon, it was hard for anybody to even find him. We found that out in chapter 1. But he realizes that he is, he's going to be dying. And so he, this is like his last words, his last charge. So it's serious. So I, I want you to feel the gravity of this challenge. This is not just to Timothy. This is for all of us to read, not just apostles, not just people functioning in four- or five-fold ministry uh, offices. This is for all of us. So what can we glean from this? Look at this. Right in the very beginning, he says, Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Those three things. I want to follow those three things. Jesus is judged. You realize that Jesus will judge you at the end of the age. Now understand, Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm not referring to Jesus as being your judge that will hold your sin against you. He could do that, but he died for those sins. And by faith in Jesus Christ, those sins have been washed away, and he holds none of it against us. However, judge is not just to dispense punishment. Jesus is not going to punish you. There's no purgatory, church. We're going to see kind of just a very brief what happens at the end of the age, just for clarity's sake. But Jesus, when he judges, is not going to condemn you. If you are a child of God, and I'm assuming that as I'm preaching, you're realizing that Timothy is. And so when he's referring to Jesus as Timothy's judge, it's not to condemn him. Number two, we're going to come back to, to each of these three, by the way. Number two, in view of Jesus' appearing. What's the big deal about Jesus' appearing? He's talking about Jesus' second coming. Jesus' first coming was 2,000 years ago. Jesus' second coming is going to be, well, no man knows the hour of the day. We'll see. <coughs> it could be soon, but what if it's not? Can you live with that? But we're going to discover something about that and why he even brings it up as a motivation. Number three, in view of his kingdom. We're going to look at all three of those. So let's go back. Judge. Understand that at the very end of the passage that I read to you, Paul says, Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me. So when we're talking about Jesus' judge, Jesus as judge, we're referring to Jesus for believers, referring to Jesus dispensing awards or rewards. Now, I do not know how it, there's an, I do not understand completely the interplay between our sins as a Christian and our righteousness and the works that we have done and how both of them are weighed at the Bema seat, that is the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks to this. Okay? The, Paul does not lay out does, do sins kind of in some way cancel? Because we will be called to account for every idle word that we have spoken. And in that passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he does say that we will be judged for our works done in the body, whether good or bad. So it's not as if, hey, you know what, it's okay for me to sin. Number one, here on earth, understand sin will have consequences, and only by God's grace do we avoid those consequences? Please understand that. But 
He's talking about Jesus at the end of the age judging us with regard to the things done in the body, whether good or evil. So do, do, do they in some way cancel out? In some ways, the, Paul does not get into this. So I'm not going to speculate other than what I've already done. But I will tell you this, that even though he does not hold our sins against us, they play into the awards that you receive. Beyond that, Scripture is not clear. But I, I don't want us to have this sense of, well, you know what? I'm saved under God's grace. I can, like, do anything. I'm sorry, that sounds like a license to sin to me, and certainly salvation is not that. All right. In Jude, chapter, yeah, chapter, sorry, verse... Sorry, there's only one chapter in Jude. Okay. It says this, verse 14, verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, these men being false teachers. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that they have done in the ungodly really focusing on that word, isn't he? Ungodly way, and of all the harsh words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, I'm just going to stop right there, and the reason why I'm pointing this out is very simply to say, Jesus is going to come, and when he comes, he will bring judgment. Now, that kind of betrays a little bit of my millennial view, but regardless, when Jesus comes, his goal in his coming is to bring judgment. In bringing, judgment, in bringing judgment, then, the focus here is the ungodly. I'm suggesting to you that it's more than that and that it will also include judgment with, with regard to us as well as believers. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and to him who was seated on it, excuse me, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne. That's you and I, by the way. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead, that's all of the dead, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Skipping over to the last verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I realize we live in a culture in which it is very popular to do what we can to erase teachings in the Bible that really don't sit too well with us. Hell is one of them. There are others. But we try to look at our, our culture inbred in many of us this desire to look at scripture and when we come across things that don't settle too well with us we finagle with them I'm sorry that, that's a term I grew up with finagle my mama used that term she's from the south so maybe that's not a southern term finagle finagle means to twist it and make it fit the way you want it to fit and Paul even warns that that's going to happen in those last days people are going to gather around their mission years but Scripture is clear here that there is a judgment. That those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, they're the ones whose names are written in the book of life, 
And then there are those whose names will not be written in that book, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which Jesus called hell. And Scripture is very clear on this. Regardless of the, 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 the abilities that men have today and the wicked desire in their heart to twist Scripture and make it say things that it truly does not say. This is Orthodox Christianity from the time of Jesus. There is a judgment. And that judgment will be upon all living and dead at the time Jesus returns. And they will stand before him. And those whose names are in the book of life, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So when we trust in Jesus, our, our names are in the book of life. Now, I'm not going to go into the book of life any more than that. There's been a lot of speculation in that. I'm not going to go there. But I will say this. that Then, if our names are written in the book of life, as I've been saying, now we have this opportunity to live our lives, not with an expectant judgment or rather condemnation, but a judgment in which Christ awards or rewards. So the challenge then is, how are we going to choose to live? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this, <clears throat> if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, that is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord includes a lot of different things. By the way, it includes his appearing, that is his second coming. It includes the destruction of the man of lawlessness. It includes the uh, bringing judgment. It includes the destruction of the earth and the new heavens and the earth. That is within this category that scripture calls the day of the Lord. So in that day, uh, because that day will bring it to light, he says, and it will be revealed, that is what we're building, will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his work. If it has been burned up because, and the only because, the only reason why it would not be burned up is because it was done in Jesus' name. It was done for his glory. It was done out of a heart that has been transformed by the power of the gospel, by the blood of Jesus Christ, sins washed away, and we stand in his righteousness, now walking in acts of righteousness by the power of his spirit, okay? And this is what he's referring to here. So what is going to be burned up? It's anything that was not, even Christians do those things, we call them sin, but do those things that are not done in Jesus' name. And if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Church, I, I don't know about you. With everything that I have done, all of my life is laid before Jesus Christ. I need to contemplate what of that, of that will be burned up. And if it's been burned up, it's because it's been burned birthed out of the flesh from Mike Curtis and not birthed by the Spirit. I only want to do things birthed by the Spirit. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. Remember that song that we sang? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Okay? So it is Christ that is working through us. He's transforming our hearts day by day. 
the challenges, then how are we living for him? <clears throat> so when we're talking about judgment as a motivation, we choose to live our lives this day, this moment, with that day in mind. And so Paul challenges Timothy, hey, but why are we doing, why am I sacrificing 2 Corinthians 11? Remember, all of the persecutions that been, he had been through, you know, shipwrecked three times a night and a day out in the ocean. Why? Because he, he wanted people to hear about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you've got to cross an ocean to obey God and preach the gospel, because there's plenty of people who live around you and where you work that don't know Jesus. And, and at the very end, we're going to be having Karen come up, and she's going to share something with us, an opportunity that she had at work, and I'm looking forward to that. So I'm going to make sure that I stay on time. Church, I've got less than 20 minutes because I, I want her to be able to have some time, okay? All right, so the, the truth then is we live now in view of eternity, in view of that day in which is it going to be burned up? Is everything that you worked for all of your, or, or just about, is it going to be burned up? Or the things that you did in Jesus' name and for his glory, is there just going to be a little bit that remains? The gold, the silver, the precious stones, those are the things that won't be burned up. Is there, honestly, and I can't answer this question for you, is there too much wood, hay, and stubble? What is your life producing? I want to, I want to, Use an illustration here. Hello, can you help me out? Some of you have seen this illustration before, okay? Uh, I'm handing you the wrong end. Here we go. Give me a moment. There we go. Here, place that around your neck. I mean, I'm going to hold that in your hand. Great, okay. You walk that way. I'm walking this way. Keep walking. Keep walking. Open the door in your way. I'm just kidding. There we go. Okay, all right. This rope represents eternity, okay? Can you see the yellow? I did this in yellow tape. Can you see the yellow tape? Just, if you can't, just say yes, it'll encourage me, okay? So it's about two inches long. Right here is the end of your life, and let me just say, it. it we'll, we'll say that that is judgment, okay? Can you just pull it a little bit tighter there? I don't want eternity sagging. Thank you, appreciate that. All right. This is your lifespan. Every moment of your life will count for eternity. Now, for this analogy really to work, Halal, you would have to step out the door so we couldn't even see you. And don't try it, though. I'm sure the mosquitoes are terrible tonight. But it, yeah, and then close the door and just imagine and that there's no end. So that's really what eternity is like. Is that, that just not boggle your mind, church? And we are living, for the sake of analogy, two inches for all of that. And what will be awarded to me here, you will see its impact throughout eternity. Thank you very much. We can just set it down right there. You're good. Perfect. You did a great job. Thank you. So here's my question. How do you want to live those two inches on that piece of rope? How do you want to live your life. In view of the judgment, man, I want to live all out. I, want to, I don't want to just start fast and burn out, but neither do I want to say, ah, you know what, one day, no, not one day, two day. Let me say that again. Not one day, church, two day. Today, 
I am running this race with everything in me. I'm going to give myself to the kingdom. The second thing, because my time's running out. The second thing is Jesus is appearing. So we see, I read that passage from Jude. Interesting passage because it's not in the Old Testament. And all I can say is, uh, from, from the book of Enoch, that that particular prophetic word, not, not, not that the uh, book of Enoch is inspired of God. I think we recognize that there's just too much in there that does not uh, line up with Scripture. But at least that prophetic word that's written down here by Jude is truly inspired of God. And that it was heard and written down and through orally perhaps or, or written down, carried through the generations. Someone wrote it down in, in the book of Enoch. And so Jude is simply saying, regardless of how this prophecy comes to us, it is true, it is accurate, that Jesus is going to come back and then he will judge. Why would Paul want to use Jesus' appearing then as motivation for Timothy? Don't just live for Jesus one day, but two days. Why would he do that? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm not going to answer that question right now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I was talking to Diego, and he was spending some time in the Word uh, before the service tonight. He was reading 1 Thessalonians 5. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, just so you know what he was reading, no, actually, because it pertains to the sermon here, it says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord, remember, the day of the Lord includes a lot of things, will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It will come like a thief in the night. The purpose then is Jesus comes and he brings destruction to the world. Now he's already taken his church with him. I'm not saying that he takes them to heaven seven years before he actually returns. I don't believe that's a teaching found in Scripture. He does come. He gathers us, the living and the dead, and it appears he comes the rest of the way with his holy angels and with his saints, now in their resurrected bodies. That was the chapter before, by the way. And then he comes the rest of the way. Apparently, he complete, by the breath of his mouth, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he destroys the man of lawlessness, all of his followers, the beast, the false prophet, etc. And the devil is then thrown into the lake of fire. He brings judgment. But the challenge is, church, he comes like a thief in the night. See, the reason why my analogy with the race doesn't exactly work too well. I mean, honestly, never, by the way, never use analogies to prove something. We always use analogies to, or illustrations to flesh something out. All right, because analogies will always falter at some point. And this analogy falters here, as I mentioned. In the race, you know where the finish line is. But here, we don't. You don't know when you're going to pass away. Generally, you don't. And number two, you don't know when Jesus is coming. Regardless of the books that have been proliferated in, in America anyway, people thinking they truly knew when Jesus was coming back. The Bible says no man, Matthew 24, no man knows the hour 
or the day. No one does. And so we need to be careful here because then he goes on and he says in verse 43, but understand this, if the owner of the house had, about the thief, the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. The verse before begins this section, therefore keep watch. Paul's point then is Timothy. Jesus could come at any moment. He would come like a thief in the night. By the way, let's disband this understanding that Jesus is going to come during the nighttime. Okay, can we do that? Jesus, he, he's going to come in the nighttime for half the world. You understand that, right? Okay, all right. So it's an analogy. He's going to come quickly, suddenly, unexpectedly. And there's num there are numerous parables about the suddenness of Jesus' return. The challenge, though, is watch and pray. Watch, constantly be watching. Be vigilant. Be alert. Because the world needs more alerts, right? But be alert because it could be tomorrow, church. It could be. Now, as I read my scriptures, I, I think there's God's got more in store for the earth between now and when he comes. But I could be mistaken on that. And so consequently, we always need to have this sense of what they call the imminent return of the Lord. That means, that imminence means at any time. Live in a way that it could come at any time, like a thief in the night. So here's my question to you. I'm going to make a transition here. I want to make this real practical. How many of you have watched Fireproof? Remember the, the Fireproof? I, I love the movie. I love the movie. Do you remember the scene in which one of the fire stretchers, uh, excuse me, the host stretchers, they call them, sorry. Yeah, anyway, one of, the, one of the firemen, he goes into the bathroom and he has a comb. And he start, doesn't he start singing into the comb there? All right. And, and he's, he calls it me time. Because someone walks in on him, uses the bathroom, and he starts singing, and the guy makes a comment. And he says, hey, you know, this is my me time. So here's my question for you. How much me time do you have? Now, I, I'm not coming against me time. And by me time, I simply mean time for you to veg, time for you to just relax. We all need that. But how much of our life is relaxing, is about me is about pleasure and my vacations. In America, and I point to no one here, in America the ideal is one day I'm going to retire and I won't have to work. Well, guess what? In heaven, you're going to work. If you weren't aware of that, you're going to work. Work is not a four-letter word. Wait a second. Anyway, work, yes, work is a four-letter word, but not in the way you're thinking. Work is a good thing. Work was given to Adam before the fall, and it was a good thing. Work is something we'll be doing in heaven. But we have this tendency to just want a lot of me time. We look at, we look at retirement as a lot of me time. I'm going to do this and this and this, and, 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 and I'm not putting those things down. But the, the challenge is, have you just, when you retire, is your goal to just, is it about you now? You know, as if, hey, I've, I have run my race. Paul says, the only time in which I'm not going to run my race is when I die. But in America, it's not going to stop running the race when I retire. What? No. 
I tell you what, the more time you have available to you, give it to the kingdom more. Give it to serving him more. We're going to learn about what that even means as far as serving the Lord more next week. What is Paul getting at here? But we watch. His return is so, so very soon. As a matter of fact, Paul says, hey, you know what? I am about to die. And right now, he's not in retirement mode. He says he's already being poured out like a drink offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. That was his life. His life to the day he died was poured out. He didn't say, oh, one day I'm going to really follow the Lord. No, it was always today for Paul. It was always right now. The thief could come at any time. I want my life to be spent. The third thing is the kingdom. Now, in chapter 4, right there, that I read to you, verse 8, excuse me, verse 18, it says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Understand that there is a heavenly kingdom that sometimes he called um, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's heaven. It's the saints and the angels and all gathered around his throne and Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. But his kingdom is also earth on earth. And many of his parables, like the, the mustard seed, those are parables about the kingdom, but what's happening here? Jesus is on his throne in heaven, but his rule extends here in your hearts as we are serving him. We are his servants. We are part of his kingdom. And I want us to understand that we are not the only kingdom on earth. Actually, the Bible is very clear on this. There are two kingdoms. There are kingdoms of men, of course, but there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Satan and there is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of of God. Now, in the parable of the mustard seed, he's talking about that earthly kingdom because that mustard seed grows into a plant, and it's the largest plant where in heaven? No, on earth in the field. There's three parables right there. All of the, the field and the garden and the dough, all three of those refer to the world here. God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom in the world, amongst the world. This is an earthly kingdom. In Colossians 1.13, it says this, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, the dominion of darkness. The word there is exousia, it's authority, and many times it's translated kingdom or dominion, not just authority. And so this is Satan's authority. That is where he rules. Do you realize that there was a day, many years ago, praise God, in which I was a part of that kingdom. And before you started following Jesus, my Bible tells me, so were you. I guess we had some company. We were serving Satan. Didn't feel like it to me. I, I was going to church boy. But when I was 14, I realized I was going to church boy that was going to hell. 
I was lost. I did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I knew the facts. I could recite the Apostles' Creed. But I was not in love with Jesus. I had not surrendered my heart to him. And I was still in the kingdom of darkness. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. There's a kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom of truth and the kingdom of lies. There's a kingdom of that you are serving in. And it's either the kingdom of Satan or it's the kingdom of God. And I bring this up because in view of his kingdom, his kingdom is in conflict with the kingdom of darkness. Jesus' kingdom is in battle against the kingdom of Satan. You were rescued from that kingdom of Satan. I was rescued when he brings up this idea of the kingdom, he is bringing up this idea of me surrendered to Jesus and living for him, and that will include, and it has to include, my passion, my desire, my prayer, my longing to see the kingdom of darkness pillaged and rescuing, by God's grace, those who are still in that darkness, just like you were. So Timothy, in view of Jesus' kingdom, with the implication that you are fighting against the kingdom of darkness. There is conflict here. You can feel the conflict tugging at your own heart, even though you're a believer. Yes, it's called sin. It's called temptation of the flesh. And Satan is still ticked off that you left him, that Jesus had a rescue plan and that he reached into his kingdom and pulled you out. Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter 12, it talks about the strong man being bound. Why? Why was Satan bound? And so that his house, which would in that parable would be referring to Satan's kingdom, you were one of the subjects there. You were one of those precious things that Jesus pillaged Satan's house of. He pulled you out of it. And if he pulled you out of it, why would we even think about living like that ever again? In that darkness, under that power, that authority of Satan. So, Timothy, live in this kingdom under the full reign of Jesus with a battle plan. And I'm going to talk about that battle plan next week, that ministry. And it's not just some apostolic ministry that's going to feel somewhat unrelatable to us. No, it, we're going to get right into the thick of it because it has everything to do with us. So I'm going to ask, how are you living? In view of eternity, that one day Jesus will be your judge. In view of the very fact that Jesus will come back at any moment, we do not know, regardless of the books that are out there. And number three... How are you living with regard to his kingdom? Have you, can, let's just get right down to it in the dirt here. Some of us, we've been in the kingdom, and we've been hurt, and we want to sit on the sidelines and just watch. Can he ask you, are you sitting? Are you sitting in your me time? Or are you spending yourselves, like Paul saying, I'm being poured out even now like a drink offering? Our life is to be surrendered 
to Jesus as Lord and King of this kingdom, to pillage the kingdom of darkness, and to live for Jesus wholeheartedly. Nothing held back. My dad always told me, you know, Mike, if you have, if you can sprint, I mean sprint at the end of a race, you save too much. Don't get me wrong. When you cross that finish line, you are done. You're exhausted. You gave it all in that race. But if there's too much left in your tank, you didn't pace yourself. Church, don't be afraid to spend yourself. Don't be afraid to give yourself completely to him. And yes, you, you may be like Paul. We, there may be a day in which, like Paul, he had to stand trial. And for Paul, he was beheaded. May that never happen to you. But don't let that make you do this. Hey, I'm just going to sit back and have some more me time. I'm going to just sit back, you know, I'm, wow, I'm, I'm just, I'm too tired. I gave myself years ago to the kingdom, but now it's time for me to pass the baton off to the next generation and let them run. Never! Paul says, I have run the race. I am finishing. I am crossing the line. So church, let's cross that line. In view of what Paul says to Timothy and these motivations, let's be poured out like that drink offering and let's be spent on that, on that track. Okay, can you stand with me? And before I pray, Karen had asked that someone stand up here with her. Okay? Okay, very good. Very good. Father, I just want to thank you so much for the free gift of eternal life. Thank you that you have come. You've rescued us and you've given us this battle plan that we get this privilege of living in your kingdom. And I just ask you, Father, may this be such a serious, solemn charge that we receive tonight of you of God and of Christ Jesus. Give us ears to hear as your church. And let us walk with God. Not one day.